I'm Kimberly Amici. Welcome to the Build Your Best Family podcast. This is a practical show to help you imagine, plan, and build your best family. We believe that the secret to having a happy family is not being perfect, but having purpose. Each week, I'll be here sharing with you lessons I've learned, conversations I've had that will equip you to create new habits, challenge mindsets, and build relationships that will allow your family to thrive. Spiritual disciplines, also known as spiritual practices or exercises, are vital for nurturing and deepening our spiritual lives. They provide a framework and guidance for our spiritual journey, helping us to cultivate a closer relationship with God and align our lives with our spiritual values. This week's guest is Michelle Cushat. Over the last 15 years, she has inspired and challenged corporate and faith-based audiences with her trauma, faith, and resilience story. She is the author of a new book that we'll be talking about today called A Faith That Will Not Fail, 10 Practices to Build Up Your Faith When Your World is Falling Apart. In our conversation, she shares a few key practices that will build our faith. She talks about what lament is and why it's a important, and how unforgiveness prevents us from growing spiritually, plus some practical steps that will help us forgive. If you want to find new freedom in your spiritual journey in life, you'll want to listen to this episode. Welcome, Michelle. It's incredible to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Kimberly. I'm thrilled to be here. Really, truly, it's been really sweet to meet you. So a question that we ask all of our guests is, what is your family known for? (laughs) My family is known for It's, I guess you could say it's diversity. We are a family of biological children, stepchildren, foster adopted children, and they, I have six of them and they are ages 31 as of today. So my oldest turned 31 today, Hmm. all the way down to twin 15 year olds who will be 16 next week. So I got four boys, two girls, one of the boys just got engaged. So we're about ready to get a daughter-in-law. And really, we're the kind of family that, you know, God puts the lonely in families is what, you know, I think it's in Proverbs, it says that. And yeah, that's kind of our story that God Mm -hmm. has um, put our mismatched selves together and created a family out of us. Wow, that's incredible. I know I was looking at your Instagram and I was like, are these all her children? And are these like (laughs) spouses or girlfriends or like, you know, like trying to figure out like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's um, wonderful. Just know that when Thanksgiving comes around, we don't even need to invite anybody else over to have a really full table. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. All right. So as I mentioned earlier, I love books that have practical steps. So mm-hmm. I was really excited when I saw the tagline of your book. So it's called A Faith That Will Not Fail, but the tagline is 10 Practices to Build Up Your Faith When Your World is Falling Apart. Mm-hmm. And yeah, let's let's talk about that. What what led you to write this book? Well, what, that's a great question. And I'm, I love that you love the subtitle because I, as I was kind of coming up with the concept for this book, what I wanted was what I needed when I was Mm -hmm. going through something hard. So I've been going through almost 30 years of pretty significant seasons of suffering, losses, Mm -hmm. grief, challenges. And so I've had a lot of experience being in the ugly trenches of real life, but trying to marry that with 
my lifetime of faith. And so the the point of turning this into practices is how do we make good, solid theology around faith and suffering into accessible, bite-sized pieces that the average person can really mm-hmm. grab hold of when they're in a hard place? Mm-hmm. So how do we take these kind of really big difficult concepts like wrestling with a good God and the reality of hard circumstances and turn them into something that if somebody is drowning, that's like a life preserver, they can reach out and grab hold Mm -hmm, of. mm -hmm. And so that's why I kind of created this book with these 10 practices and the 10 practices each have five short chapters. And so that makes 50 chapters and they're all bite-sized. Like if you are desperate, if you're having a hard day and there's a certain thing that you're struggling with, then look at the table of contents, find it, take what mm-hmm. you need, leave everything else. Mm. Oh, that's good. That seems, especially for busy moms, overwhelmed moms, mm-hmm. that seems like just what you yeah, need. Yeah, totally. And let's be real. When we're dealing with hard circumstances, we don't have the time or the energy mm-hmm. to sit down and do a four-hour Bible study, right? Mm-hmm. We just, yeah. we're like, help. I mean, that's about all we can do. God help. You know, yeah. I need something. And so my goal is for me to be kind of like that friend who's like, I just have a little bite-sized something for you to hang on to, to give you just enough hope to get mm-hmm. through today and be ready for tomorrow. Yeah. All right. So why don't you share some of these practices with us? And then yeah. kind of, if, if you like, like, give us some of the reasons why you chose yeah. these particular practices or how you stumbled upon them. So these 10 practices are somewhat unconventional. They're not mm-hmm. what you would typically expect, would expect in a spiritual formation kind of faith building book. But I had two criteria when I selected them. One is it needed to be a practice, something that had biblical precedent. So it needed mm-hmm. to have some kind of basis in scripture that, you know, there's some kind of basis that God says, hey, this is good for your faith. <laughs> and so it had to have that. But even more important, it had to be a practice that I actually used and was beneficial mm-hmm. to me. I'm not going to mm-hmm. sit there and promote a practice that wasn't helpful to me while I was in the trenches of my right. own suffering. And so those two criteria are how I vetted the different practices that went into the book. So let's talk about the practices we have. We open with the practice of laments, which is kind of an inauspicious way to begin a book. It's like, who wants to talk about lament? And yet yeah. it's exactly the right place to start because before we can even talk about having hope or anything else, we just need to give our permission, ourselves permission to say, it's not supposed to be mm-hmm. this way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this practice of lament, lament, allowing ourselves to give voice to our grief, our sadness, the fact Mm -hmm. that, hey, this motherhood thing isn't turning out the way I thought it would. Or this dream of happy marriage, happily ever after isn't quite that way in reality or whatever it might be, whatever that thing is. And so we have the practice of lament. We have one of the practices is the practice of humility. I find the practice of humility is becoming less and less existent in our current culture. What does it look mm-hmm. like to to position ourselves in a place of humility? And you know, I talk about how our, our suffering or our struggle is often a problem of posture more than pain. Mm-hmm. And this practice of humility, what does it look like on a daily basis to practice that? We have the practice of relinquishment, what spiritual relinquishment looks like. The practice of waiting. How many of us like waiting? Not, <laughs> nobody, <laughs> right? Yeah. What does it look like to practice waiting? The practice of connection or community. And 
after coming out of years of isolation, you know, the last few years of really mm-hmm. kind of stilted community, how do we re-engage with it? Because it's such a critical part mm-hmm. of our effort that does not fail. And so that gives you mm-hmm. some examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit. I want to talk about the practice of lament. It's something that I recently have leaned into over the last couple of years. And, but, you know, I've spent a lot of time avoiding hard stuff and avoiding the hard feelings. And I am the, that's great. How do we, like, I'm the one of the group who's like, I know you're feeling this way, but what steps could we, could we do to move forward? Like, and I also am a life coach and like, (laughs) so it's like, that is my thing, but, but this is important. So for those of us who maybe grew up in a church where it was all about faith, 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 forward, forward, forward you know, speak life into your situation, which is absolutely biblical, but we forget the other part of that, right? Yeah. So like, talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I live in Colorado, halfway between Denver and Colorado Springs. One of the realities of living in Colorado is it's a very dry, arid climate. And mm-hmm. so we are almost always at risk of wildfires. That's mm-hmm. kind of a constant. In fact, today, even as we're recording, and it's March, we're under a red flag warning, which just means that the risk of fire is high today, even in March, which sounds wow. crazy, but it is. And if winds pick up, wildfires can spark and spread really fast. We had that happen a couple of years ago, December 30th of 2021. It was a very, very windy day. It had been a dry winter so far. And a wildfire sparked up in Superior, Colorado, called the Marshall Fire. And in the span Mm. of just a few hours, it did $2 billion worth of damage and consumed 1,084 homes. Wow. Like, it's hard to wrap your mind around Mm -hmm. 1,084 residences, Mm -hmm. families Mm -hmm. that lost everything that day in the span of hours. Wow. And what I talk about in Lament is the fact that when we try to skip past the the reality of our grief, it's like trying to build houses on that land without dealing with the debris from the fire first. Mm. Oh, that's good. So it took, before they could start rebuilding again in Superior, it took months of 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 going through the ash, going through the debris, bulldozing mm. foundations. I mean, the work of cleaning through the debris was far more extensive than any building that has happened wow. since, right? And we forget that as Christians who we we convince ourselves that we just need to be positive and hopeful, which is true. We do have reason for hope. But that we don't do it to the exclusion of dealing with the rubble in our lives. We Mm. must acknowledge and give voice to the reality of our desperate condition. Mm -hmm. Part of the beauty of Jesus's death, crucifixion, and resurrection is, is the fact that, you know, through that process, we get to acknowledge the fact that we actually needed it, right? The only mm-hmm. people that really appreciate resurrection and and salvation are the ones who realize how desperate they were before the salvation was offered, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so lament connects us with the desperation of our, con- our condition mm-hmm. and forces us to deal with the very real rubble of, of our human condition. And mm-hmm. then when we do that, that then becomes the healthy ground for true healing to happen. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger and I would read the Psalms, I would just feel like I totally can't relate. 
you know, and I would just be like, why is this a whole book of like, this is depressing. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, over the last couple of years, it's become, you know, I've been going through the Psalms repeatedly, you know, over the last couple of years, because I do find that it's a place where I can lament, where I can relate to sadness and disappointment and this isn't the way it was supposed to be mm-hmm. and why am I here and and look what's going on in the world around me like that I can't even control and it definitely has paved the way for me to experience joy mm-hmm. and you know create continually be dependent on God and knowing that you know I'm not the only one that this is happening to that yeah. hard things happen yeah totally one of the things I wrote in the book is that the music that springs from, or the song that springs from the place of our pain is the most beautiful mm-hmm. kind of music. Mm-hmm. The New Testament talks about offering God a sacrifice of praise, yeah. which seems so weird. And yet the praise that comes from the place of our pain really is some of the most powerful music, right? But mm-hmm. we got to acknowledge that we have this some pain. Mm-hmm. What happens is, is when we don't give voice to just our grief and losses, it turns into a more sinister expression like Mm -hmm. uh, anger, (laughs) right? When we don't acknowledge this, it can become something else, which is more destructive rather than healing. Yeah, And so, and we see that right now in our culture, the amount of anger everywhere is just significant. And I think a big part of that is because there's all this un- unacknowledged grief that we Mm. haven't been able to say out loud I feel sad or I feel disappointed or it it shouldn't have it's not fair this shouldn't have happened and so then it gets stuff stuff avoided avoided and then it comes out right other maladaptive behaviors Mm, that's good you know when I practice this process of lament and grief I it spotlights the areas where I need to forgive Right, oh, and we're, we're and I start you're to gonna see go there yeah. to that topic, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, because this is one of the areas where I'm like, I need practical advice, especially when you're in a season where you don't feel like doing anything. I just want a script because I could do the script every day, but if I have to wake up every morning and reinvent the wheel when I'm feeling what I'm feeling, it's not happening. Yeah, and so when I let myself be sad and angry and acknowledge those feelings, then I can go, Oh, this is what I'm holding on to. This is who yeah. I'm mad at. So yeah. let's talk about unforgiveness. And first and foremost, what is it? How does it prevent us from spiritually growing? Well, okay. So to couple lament with forgiveness is so mm-hmm. wise on your part because they often go together. Mm. Forgiveness The only way we can truly forgive is to acknowledge that it comes at a cost. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. And if we're not acknowledging the cost, the pain, the whatever, then we're not going to be able to fully forgive. Right. Somebody has to pay the price. But we first have to acknowledge that there is a price that has come, Mm -hmm. you know, that this wound has happened and it cost me something. But that requires the lament, right? So when we don't acknowledge that, we may be able to stuff and avoid the reality of the circumstance, but we're not forgiving. And even mm. like you said, even if we have a script and we say the words, I forgive, because we can't even tell the truth about what it has cost us, forgiveness mm. can't really happen. Yeah. Right? So it ends up holding us hostage. 
So what does forgiveness do to us spiritually? Well, for one, it when we're when we're in a place of unforgiveness, we're inadvertently saying that I am up here and you're down here, that somehow I am better than you. And once we start to slip mm-hmm. into this hierarchy, we lose humility and we lose our posture as a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> wow. Right? Yeah. It's so painful. It's so hard to say. You know, you think of the the story that Jesus shared of the the, I think it was a tax collector and the Pharisee, the spiritual leader. And one of them was saying, God, thank you so much that I'm not like the tax collector here. The spiritual leader, thanks so much. I'm not like him. I do all these good things. And the tax collector said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Right? Um, mm-hmm. Only the person that can say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner, can truly have a heart of forgiveness. Yeah. Right? The the other one is spending too much time talking about how great they are and how glad they are they're not bad like the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not acknowledging the reality of their desperate condition. Okay. So you mm-hmm. see how yes. forgiveness and lament have to go in hand in hand. Yes. So what happens when we have unforgiveness, first of all, it changes our ability to grow and learn because we become people rooted in pride, not humility. Mm. And pride makes us very unteachable. Right. So basically we stop our own growth, but Mm -hmm. not only do we stop our own growth, according to the Bible, what Jesus has said, when we don't offer forgiveness, we actually inhibit God's forgiveness of us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is what we just talked about. Why would God need to forgive us if we don't think we have anything needing forgiving? Yeah. Not only do we inhibit our own growth, but we inhibit our own capacity to receive forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I know what I'm capable of, and that scares me. If God ever turns off the faucet of forgiveness and grace toward me, I'm in big trouble really fast. Yeah. And so, you know, that unforgiveness is very sinister. I, you know, after I, I've experienced cancer three times. I've, I'm a three-time cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with the reality of knowing that something sinister in me is growing, and it will kill me if I don't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is exactly the same. Yeah. If I harbor unforgiveness, it is never static. You can't just put it in a tiny box and it stays that size. It's always growing. So you're either moving toward unforgiveness and bitterness and that cancer is eating you, or you're moving toward active forgiveness and letting it go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it requires you acknowledging that there is a cost to pay. But forgiveness means I'm going to pay that cost by forgiving you rather than exact that cost from you. Right. And that's good to keep in mind. I mean, because, you know, like some of the things that I am working on forgiving, forgiving, I I feel like so many of them, I desperately just need an acknowledgement from that other person. And I've also had to come to the reality that maybe I'm not going to get that. And so in those instances, how do I, how do I react? How do I, how do I reconcile that? You know, at some point you have to decide how you want to live, you know, some of this comes back to this whole concept of boundaries and and knowing what is in your control and not. Mm-hmm. But the reality is your ability to live whole and free and forgiven in relationship with God is dependent on your ability to forgive. This is mm-hmm. not dependent on them. It's dependent mm-hmm. on you. Mm-hmm. You are in control of that. You're not in control of them. Right. Uh, and, and understanding that my only agency is my response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. The other piece of that, too, I wanted to add really quick. It's that 
remember, go back. I already quoted this, but go back to while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. He paid the cost of forgiveness before we acknowledged it as well. Right. Yeah, for sure. He didn't demand us to beg and plead and acknowledge or anything else. He paid the price, even knowing we were rejected at times. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he set that precedent saying that, you know, forgiveness is at some point, it can't be, it can't be earned. It's given. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does it practically look like to forgive? I mean, like, well, what are the motions that yeah. you're going through when you're feeling this, this anger and this annoyance and even sadness and hurt? Yeah. For me, I'll tell you what my, pro- my process. First, I have to acknowledge mm-hmm. the fact that forgiveness does not always mean relationship. It's mm-hmm. restoring. Okay. Forgiveness does not mean that I go right back into a very unhealthy relationship. Forgiveness means that I am paying the price of the debt and I'm refusing to hold that bill against them. Okay. So what I do with that, that's more of a work that happens in my own heart and mind and with my own voice. And often I actually have to speak it out loud. So when I have a wound that's not, especially the ones that are not acknowledged, I'm I'm with you. Those are the hardest ones to forgive mm-hmm. because they can't see it. They're not they're not seeing or acknowledging or taking responsibility for the way that they wounded me, and that yeah, ooh, that makes me so upset. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> yes. So at times I have to just say out loud, God, it is unfair. It is not fair how I was treated. And that really burns me. Like, I'm Mm. not happy about it. But the truth of the matter is, God, if I try to exact some kind of punishment from that, I'll end up becoming the one doing the wounding. I know this Mm. about myself. I don't don't have the perfect balance of grace and truth like you do, God. So I'm going to have to give them to you and trust that you will deal with them in the way that they need to deal with. But for today, Mm. I'm not carrying this anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, forgive them. I'll probably have to come back again later today and say it again, but I'm releasing this debt to you. You are the one that now holds the IOU, not me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really good. I think of ways I've been hurt and in my response to withdraw or self-protect, I in turn hurt them. And then you're stuck in this cycle because it's like, yeah. well, you did this. Well, you did this. Well, I did this because you did that, but I did that because you did this. And you're like... <laughs> Oh, you know what that is? It's a constant cycle of trying to exact yeah. payment from the other person. Yeah. And each and, one of you is trying to exact payment. Right. The only way to forgive, again, this idea of forgiving a debt is you have to acknowledge there is a cost, but yeah. I'm going to choose to pay it. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, and I think the speaking part is super important to, you know, anytime we're renewing our mind or countering those negative thoughts, we actually have to speak something. It's not enough to just. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like, go through it in your head. There's something that happens when we open our mouth and we interrupt those thoughts and we counter it with truth for sure. I'm a, I'm a world-class ruminator. I'm really good at ruminating. (laughs) Yeah. Like if I could have a degree, a master's degree in rumination, I would have it by now. So Mm -hmm. I love to, I'm a, I process quickly, but Mm -hmm. I just can turn a thing over and over in my head until I'm so worked up about it all over again. Mm-hmm. Like it just happens. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the only way for me to counteract rumination is actual verbal expression. Yeah. And I think sometimes when we verbalize things, we we realize they're not as bad as we thought they were. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at least I do. Like I'll try to share the story with somebody and I'll go, 
I guess that wasn't such a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) It seems so big in your head. It seems so big at three o'clock in the morning when you were ruminating about it. Oh, yes. The the other thing I do in addition to verbally, because I'll literally have to say, nope, Michelle, you're not going to go there today. Nope, you're Mm. not going to do that anymore. We're not going to think about that anymore. We're not going to waste any more Mm -hmm. energy on that. No more. Mm -hmm. The other thing I do is journaling about it. A lot of people talk about journaling and, you know, people have different feelings about it. But the reality is, is who was it? I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, what we work out on paper, we don't take out on our family and friends. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's good. Now, I I have seasons where I'm better at it than others. Yeah. But I do feel like I feel seen and heard just writing things down in a journal. Like I still would like the real people in my life to know what I'm feeling, but there's like an element where I'm not carrying it all, all of a sudden, because I am putting it It kind of unravels it a little Mm -hmm. bit. So Mm -hmm. uh, being able to, because I need to be careful that I don't ruminate about it to other third parties either, Mm because I can do that too, where I can verbally process with somebody else, but I'm actually causing harm by talking about somebody else when they're Mm -hmm. not present, right? So Mm -hmm. journaling, kind of a prayer journal where I'm like, God, this happened. It is killing me. It hurts. It bothers me. It makes me angry. (laughs) All of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that, I can usually say, but God, I'm giving it to you. I have to trust you to deal with them in your way and your time. Yeah. And I think that part is important to add to the end because I I found myself venting, you know, a lot to Uh my friends. and. At one point I had to say, like, I appreciate the fact that we, we are able to do this, but like at, at some point it becomes just rehearsing what the other person has done wrong over and over again, like making a case against yeah. them. And it actually kind of stokes the fire. We have mm-hmm. to be aware of the fact that venting at times doesn't help us release it. It actually mm-hmm. helps us hold on to it more. Yeah. Yeah. So my friends, we've made this pack that we're going to pray like after we've shared you know, typically it's about our family, you know, uh-huh. it's in, it's in a prayer con- Like, let's make sure we pray and follow this conversation uh-huh. up with like, Lord, have your way, you know, challenge us, show us what we need to know. But we have, we, we make sure that we do that because otherwise it just turns into, yeah, stoking the fire. And yeah. then we come, we walk into our home or we walk in back into that situation sort of with an attitude and they haven't even seen us (laughs) it usually looks like we think we're all that like you Mm -hmm. low life people who don't Mm -hmm. love god as much as me and we walk in with this (laughs) it's that pride thing right yeah yeah so there's a lot of components that's helpful for me is praying the psalms so david some of the other psalmists would pour out their complaints about different Mm -hmm. people who Mm -hmm. have wronged them and the psalms can be a way for me to kind of pray that complaint that still kind of relinquishes it to god so David wasn't shy about complaining about the enemies that pursued him and were unjust to him and all that kind of stuff. But he did it in the context of a prayer and giving it to God. And I find when I don't know what to pray because I'm so turned up about it, so spun up about it, praying the psalm can be helpful too. So I think this is this is a quote from your book, but how do we prevent God's proven faithfulness today from fading into doubt tomorrow? Mm. Oh, this is something that's really practical as well. We tend to remember our brains, our bodies are are wired up to search out danger. That's how our brains are wired up. We look for danger. We look for pain to avoid it, all of that. However, that means at times the memories that we hang on to are the bad ones, not the good ones. And so part of our process of 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 being able to have a faith that withstands whatever may come tomorrow is to regularly take 
stock of God's faithfulness in times past. We see this in the story of Joshua in the Old Testament, where they crossed the Jordan River and God had them go back into the Jordan and pull out 12 stones and set up a an altar of remembrance. And he said, he goes, the reason for this is later on when your children ask you what these stones mean, you can tell them how the Lord delivered you. Well, we need to be regularly collecting stones from the rivers of our lives, the things that we've crossed and and overcome and endured, collecting stones from there and set them up as a, a remembrance of God's faithfulness in those times. When we do, then when the next hard thing happens, we can look back at those things, stones and say, if God was faithful to deliver us then, he will be faithful to deliver us again. The same God of yesterday is the same God today. He has the same power, the same love, the same affection. We can trust him to do today what he did before. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of the story in Esther where the they had written down all of the things that had happened in the kingdom. And when the, yeah. the king became sick, he had them like read back the journals. Yes. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, because our memory is so short when it comes it to so stuff short. like this. And I say that know, pain yeah. creates spiritual amnesia. What is pain? Pain creates spiritual amnesia. When we're in a yeah. place of pain, whatever it is, whether we're worried about a kid or yeah. a job or whatever, yeah. it creates a spiritual amnesia where we forget yeah. all the ways that God has been present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like when they say when you're in childbirth, you're like, I'll never do that again. And then, <laughs> and then a year later, you're, you're like, oh, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so yeah. true. It's so true. We yeah. forget. We forget. Yeah. And it's easy to forget the many, many ways that God has been faithful mm-hmm. to us in mm-hmm. in the context of our current struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine that looks like for parents with little kids, that could be a gratitude journal. It could be yeah. things we're happy about and th- successes put in a jar. Like there's lots of ways we can keep track of it. But I think that that is a really good practice, like mm-hmm. something that we could practically do, not just say, oh, I'll remember because we won't. Yeah. In my in my third book, I wrote a book called Relentless, The Unshakable mm-hmm. Presence of a God Who Never Leaves. But I, through that whole book, I walked through creating an altar of remembrance, a box mm. that you collect mementos or tokens Ooh. that are symbols of different times in your life when God has been faithful. I've got that box up on the shelf and I can pull it out and remember these tokens remind me of certain circumstances where mm-hmm. God showed extraordinary presence and faithfulness. And Boy, let me tell you, I go back to that in current circumstances and go, all right, I remember when he did that. Oh, I remember when he did that. Yeah. Oh, that is fantastic. And I'm thinking two different things. I think of, we've had to do these projects like summer boxes, you know, when the Uh kids come back from school, they're supposed to have all these little mementos that they're supposed to. But I can imagine for you who is has older children, when you start to have grandchildren to open that box with them and be like, this is where God has shown up in my life. And this is because kids love that. I mean, I find even my teenagers are like so enthralled with like my college mementos or the old Uh t-shirts or whatever it is. Right. And you open that box and you just are able to not only for your own edification, but to build up uh-huh. your family and to say, yeah, totally. like pass those These stories, stories down. are important. And that's, again, that's why in mm-hmm. Joshua, it says, when your children and grandchildren ask you what these stones mean, tell mm-hmm. them, right? That's the pattern. And we can do this a number of ways. It can mm-hmm. be a written journal. It can be an actual box with tokens, mm-hmm. mementos. It can be whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's part of sharing the gospel. The good news is telling our own children and grandchildren how God has been faithful. And so then they yeah. end up getting the foundations of their own faith 
through the stones that we've collected along the way. Mm-hmm. All right. So as we wrap up, what are some words of encouragement for those, like we mentioned earlier, those that are struggling, struggling with faith, str- they're just worn out and overwhelmed, but they want to maintain spiritual yeah. practices. Yeah. They want to stay the course, but they're just at the end of their rope. Yeah, I, I get it. I've been there. I've been there. And so to begin with, first of all, it makes sense why you get to the end of your rope. This life is really hard. It is. It's hard. It's unexpected, unpredictable. Outcomes uh, don't always happen like we expect them to. And so I have lots of empathy and compassion for that place. One, I want to encourage you with this, that in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, but he prays for us. And I think this is so critical that when we think about a faith that will not fail, that we have a Jesus that prayed for us long before we knew we needed it. He prayed for our faith. He prayed that we would be strengthened, that we would be reminded of God's love for us and his presence with us. That's a really sweet comfort because it reminds me it's not all up to me, that I have a Savior who's already prayed for my faith. And some days I just need to sit in that because I have nothing else to give and just know that Jesus has prayed for my faith and he's with me as I walk this out. The other thing as an encouragement is just tiny baby steps. This book, even though it talks about practices, it's more about being than doing, okay? So allow yourself just to take five minutes a day to sit with the reality of God's presence with you, to be in that and to receive it. You don't need to scramble. You don't need to cross off a checklist. You don't need to hurry up and try to be a really, really good Christian, but sit in the work that Jesus has already done. One of my favorite parts of the Bible is Jesus on the cross when he says, it is finished. It is finished. And for those of us who are high achievers and feel like we need to work our way to faith, it is such a relief to sit there and realize not only did Jesus pray for me, but he did the heavy lifting of this whole faith thing. He did it. He did the work. It's finished. And I can sit in that. Um, And so those little tiny, just spend time with them, acknowledging, recognizing, and sinking in to the beautiful work that God has already done on your behalf. Yeah, that's so good. That's such good, great encouragement. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. This was an incredible conversation and I've learned a ton. Thank you, Kimberly. It's my pleasure. You can find Michelle at michellecushette.com. She's also on Instagram as Michelle Cushette. I'll link to all of this plus where you can find her new book in the show notes. At the end of each episode, I remind you that family culture is not about perfect, it's about purpose. For those of you that are unfamiliar with that expression, family culture, it simply refers to how a family relates to one another, works together, and achieves goals. It's what your kids can expect and your family members can count on. It's what makes your family unique. Many of us have a family culture that's built by default. But with a little time and intention, you can build a culture that's rooted in your beliefs and values. If that feels overwhelming, don't worry, I can help. I've created the Family Culture Discussion Sheet to get you started. It's a simple list of questions that help you identify what's important to you and clarify what you want your family to be known for. Once you've answered those questions, building your family culture becomes much easier. You can get that resource by going to buildyourbestfamily.com forward slash resources or following the link in the show notes.